0: Well, good morning, life fellowship. So good to see you here this morning. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Man, that's an awesome song. Amen. Amen. And we're gonna be talking about Jesus this morning. we're gonna be talking about Jesus every morning because that's who we are and that's what we do. Uh, but but I, I think it's important. I, I want to do this first service, but I actually forgot to do this. Uh, but I really think it's important for us just to pause for a moment. I know we're going to be raising some. Funds for our brothers and sisters that are in Ukraine. Sometimes we, we see things and we hear things on the news, and, and there's a geopolitical level of understanding what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, and I think every single one of us looks at what's happening over in that part of the world, in Europe, in Eastern Europe, and our heart breaks over the evil of, of war that is happening. And sometimes there is just wars, but sometimes there's evil wars, and this is an evil war that's happening right now. But one of the things I think we need to remember, there are, from what we, under know, from what we understand, over 3 million brothers and sisters, evangelical Christians who, are, who live in Ukraine. I'm not sure how many are still there in spite of all the, uh, of the fighting and the refugee situation. But 3 million brothers and sisters we have. And I believe that sometimes as we're praying for these things to happen, we, think we pray on a very high level. Um, but I want us to do, s- just spend the next few moments as I pray, I'm inviting you to pray, and let us pray for our brothers and sisters to shine as lights and to be salt in a very difficult place right now. I don't know about you. I don't know how, how I would be, be living out my faith in, this, in, in the midst of what they're, they're, what they're going through, uh, but it's, it's a challenge. And So let's just bow our heads and close our eyes and ask God's favor and to shine his power on our brothers and sisters in that country. Father, I come to you today because the world is raging. I can't tell how many times I've been looking at Psalm 2 over the last few weeks, just thinking about how the nations rage and the people plot in vain, but yet, God, you laugh at the plans of men. But, God, there's something even more important we're praying for this morning. Yes, we want the war to stop. We want the the evil of Of uh, this government to to stop invading and and killing innocent lives. But God, we're praying even more so for our brothers and sisters who are suffering, who are questioning, uh, who are fighting, who are fleeing, who are hungry, who don't know where their next meal is coming from, who don't have enough money to make it to the border. God, I don't know all the problems, but God, You see every man, woman, and child in that nation, and you see the the people that you have called by your name. And I'm praying, God, a special blessing, your power, your grace, your wisdom, your might, your presence, your peace, in the midst of a very trying and difficult time. And so, God, may we remember them, not just with our money, and though that is good, but God, help us to remember them in our prayers. And we pray these things in your powerful name. Amen. As we're going to be talking about the cross, I know Dan did a great job of of, uh, starting our our series off last week. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be talking about the the juxtaposition, the, the, the folly and the power of the cross. This morning. As we've talked about the very different, the, the, the different dimensions, every week we're going to be dis- discussing a different thing, different passages of scripture, uh, I thought it'd be good to start with the folly of the cross and the power of the cross. Because when you talk about the cross to people, sometimes it is something that is offensive. It's something or something that's adored. And why is that? Uh, I think about the, these kinds of things that are in our lives that we, it, there's one singular thing, but there's, we have two different opinions about it. In my own home, that one thing is mustard. Now, now I have, my wife Liz, she loves mustard. She, puts, she could put mustard on anything and she thinks mustard elevates it. I'm not talking about the Grey Poupon stuff. I'm talking about just the regular yellow mustard. Now, when it comes to me, I despise mustard. I don't even like the sight of mustard. I don't like the smell of mustard. And if you put mustard on anything, I promise you this, I will not eat it. That's how much I hate mustard. I mean, as a kid, before I knew that you could like order special things, uh, I would get my quarter pounder of cheese from McDonald's and I would always open up the bun and I would scrape off every bit of mustard I possibly could on that thing. Because I, I just don't like it that much. But that's, you know, mustard in our house is like that. I've got a son that loves mustard. And, and you know, he's, he's been a good disciple of my wife. But I, I just, I, if, if, we, if, I, if I never bought mustard again for the rest of my life, I'd be happy. If they destroyed mustard from the face of this earth, I'd be happy. That's how much I despise mustard. Now, now and when you think about that, that's how, really, how people think about the cross, Right, you have maybe you have friends that like, oh don't tell me about Jesus. I don't want to hear about Jesus, but yet for us, we just we're in this room and we gather together weekly and we're singing about Jesus. We're singing about the cross and it moves us. I mean, it's, it, I'm shedding tears thinking about what Jesus has done for us, how he died for us. How he took on my sin and my shame. And so when we think about the cross, it is so true as what what Paul says here in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That word folly is from the Greek word moria or moros, which is where we get the English word moron. It's, It's moronic to some people, to those who are perishing, to those who don't understand how Jesus is, is come to save them. But to us who are being saved, what is it to us? It is the power of God. It's the power of God. And, and I think about this statement that Paul makes. And we're going to talk about the context of how we, why he's making this statement in just a little bit. But this statement is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago, isn't it? There's still people today that when they think about the cross, Man, I, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a coworker, or a neighbor, or just people that you know. But there's this offensiveness, to it, and there's almost a disgust about it. And, and we see this played out. I, I can't tell how many times I've, I've turned on a show and started watching a show, and it's always, it's always the Christian who's the weird guy in the show. They're either weird, they're either hypocritical, or they're wicked. But one of those three things, you never see a positive portrayal of a Christian on most shows today. In fact, I was just talking to a friend of mine this week, and he was talking to me how he was starting into this this new show, and within 10 minutes of this new show, what happens? The Christian family, they're the bad guys. And there's a part of me, when I see this and when I hear about these kinds of things, I'm I'm thinking, okay, how do we change this? How do we change the, the mentality or the focus or the belief of, I want people to like Jesus. I want people to accept my faith and not being weird. I don't want people to hate the cross or to think it's foolish. But I think that's the problem. Is that I think that we can convince people to to appreciate our faith and to appreciate Christianity and to appreciate the cross. And even if they don't believe in Jesus, at least they they think that we're not weird or that we're not morons for believing in what we believe. And I think there's a trap that we can fall into. And I believe this, there's a trap that the modern American church has fallen into. And that is this. I believe, I believe Christians a number of years ago said, man, if we could just, if, you know, Christianity is shrinking. It's, 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 it's atrophying in our nation. It's losing its grip in, in culture and society. So, man, what if we did, what if we did this? What if we, instead of leading with kind of the stuff that is offensive to people, let's lead with what appeals to people. Let's try to be as relevant as possible. And let's try to get celebrities to, 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 like, to back our product. Let's get as many famous and rich and wealthy and powerful people to say, hey, I'm a Christian. It's not bad. Right? Or, and we can do also do this, let's get the best communicators and we'll put up in front, in front of people, and we'll have them convince people that Jesus is really good. And let me just tell you something. If that was our plan, that has been our plan. And that would be the plan if you were to hire a PR firm and say, hey, we're looking to, to improve our, our product in, in the marketplace of ideas. How do we do this? A PR firm would come up with this. A PR firm would not come up with Paul's plan. Wouldn't come up with Jesus' plan. I, I think it's fascinating how many times Jesus, when the crowds were getting too big, he would say something really crazy like, You gotta eat my flesh and drink my blood. What? People disperse. Okay, now, now we know who's serious. Like that's what Jesus was always doing. And I think there's this, there's this, there's this desire in us to want people to like Christianity and to like Jesus but that's not the point of our faith. The point of our faith and the point of the cross is not so that people will like it or accept it. It's to change the world. It's to save souls. And that is why Jesus came. And you will either love it or reject it, but there's no middle ground. And I think what we've tried to do is we've tried to appeal to people because we believe that the power, when he talks about the power of God, I think it's the power to really work in people's hearts to change them, to transform them. And if you are someone who's experienced the power of God in your own life because you yourself trusted in Jesus Christ, because you realized you were a sinner, that your sin had affected and offended God, and that Jesus, in in that offense, didn't just reject us, but in love, he sent Jesus to us to take on our sin and to take our guilt and to take our punishment for us on behalf of us on the cross. And when he rose three days later, overcame the curse in death that you and I deserve. If that's, if that's the power that you have experienced, then we can, re- you're sitting here rejoicing this morning. But how do we get people to experience that same power? If you think about this passage, it's in the context of, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is writing this letter to this church in Corinth. This church is a church he started, and he he spent 18 months there. When Paul was in different places, starting different churches, he'd be in some cities for maybe three weeks to three months, like Thessalonica. He was there for a very short time. But he spent a lot of time in Corinth. And when you think about all the churches that Paul planted... If every church that Paul planted was a child, Corinth would be the problem child. It was the one church that caused him the greatest heartache, the greatest pain, the greatest sorrow, the greatest contention, and, and we have First and Second Corinthians, which are two of the letters that Paul wrote, but Paul actually wrote four letters to, to this church when we don't have the first and the third letter. But we have them both of those, the first and the third letter referenced in both the second and fourth letter, which are the inspired letters that, that Paul wrote. But Paul's writing this very first letter because as he gets word where he's administering, he hears, hey, there's divisions in the church. People are kind of breaking up into different factions. And thats we, we just love doing that as people, don't we? We love just separating and dividing. We've talked about that in our study with Philippians. But the, the problem is, if you, read, if you read a little bit earlier in, in the chapter, people are saying, I'm of Paul, I am of Apollos, I'm of Cephas or Peter, and I'm of Jesus. And there's these groups saying, I like this person. And the reason why they were liking that person really had nothing to do with, with h- how godly they were, but what was their skill and what was their power in convincing people to be Jesus followers. We know that Apollos, if you look in Acts chapter 18, was one of, one of those eloquent speakers that the early church knew. And, and so there was this there's this cultural occasion and why Paul is writing this letter, by which he says, if you look at verse 17, "For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with the words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." See, what Paul is saying is they're breaking up into groups because they're all going to their favorite speaker. Oh, I like I like it when Paulus preaches. I like it when Paul preaches. I like his speaking. And the reason for that is you have to understand now the cultural context of that day. A rhetorical acumen was one of the greatest skills that that in first century Roman Empire that you could possess. People made a living off of training people in in what, what Paul says in verse 17 of Sophia Lagos. Wise words or eloquent speech. And so... This was, this was a real thing. This is what people paid people to do. If you think about the heroes of, of, the, of the early days of the Greek Empire, in, in bet- the battles between Athens and Sparta, many of the great wars and the battles and things and the movements and the changes that took place on that, on that little uh, peninsula, if you study that history, many things were spurred on by great speeches and great orators. Same thing was true for Rome. There was this elevation of, of oration, a rhetorical skill that people held as one of the highest ideals. In fact, this is what the common belief was, that a great and skilled orator was someone who created belief into the hearts and minds of the people. It was the speaker's job to create belief in your heart. And Paul was was combating that idea, saying it's not about the skill or the sophia or the eloquence of what is said that's going to convince people. Church, Corinth, if you're thinking that that, hey, I'm of this people because hey, our church will really grow if Apollos speaks every Sunday, because he is so he's so eloquent. No, our church will, will grow every week if this person speaks. What they're doing is they're falling into the trap of saying, we just need really dynamic speakers to communicate the message so that it will convince people to be followers of Jesus. And what Paul's saying is, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're not leading with eloquent speech. We lead with the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you lead with the cross of Jesus Christ, that, that's, not, that's not in the PR firm playbook. Okay, That's not going to convince most people today, and it definitely wasn't going to convince people 2,000 years ago. In fact, we don't see Christians using the symbol of the cross until about the third century. The cross was not something they led with. In fact, Cicero, you ever heard the name of Cicero, who's a great Roman uh, speaker and and, and leader back in their history. And one of his sayings was this, "Let, let no Roman mind ever dwell upon that word, the cross. It was such an object of shame and scorn that that you weren't even supposed to think about it. And yet here we are, our faith system is elevating it. We're elevating what transpired on the cross. And Paul's saying, we're not hiding that part. We're going to lead with that because that's when you see the power of God. And that's Paul's argument. Paul's argument, here's the main idea I I want us to just hold on to today. We need the wisdom of God to experience the power of the cross. We need the wisdom of God to experience the power of the cross. Paul, in this section that we're going to read about this morning, spends a lot of time talking about wisdom, the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. And many times we try to live out our faith and we try to understand our faith using the wisdom of man and not the wisdom of God. It is by default that we rest upon the wisdom of man but it is really the wisdom of God that we need. And when we rest upon the wisdom of God and do things according to his wisdom, that's when we see and experience the power of God. So how do we do that today? How, do, how does the cross become something of power to us? What we've got to do this morning, we're going to look at the paradox of the cross. Then we're going to look at the, the, the posture towards the cross and then the proclamation of the cross. Because what Paul does is he establishes his argument in verses 18 through 25. He's basically going to say, This is my premise of under of rejecting the wisdom of man and believing in the wisdom of God to really understand the power of the cross. And if that's true, the next two sections, verses 26 through 31, and chapters 2, verses 1 through 5, are our response to Paul's argument. And it's an internal response, and then there's an external response. Okay? But what we've got to do, here's here's what I want us to to really confront this morning, is our belief that we can decorate the cross, that we can diminish the cross, we can hide parts of the cross, or or hide parts of Jesus that we don't like. Or let's just read about the things of Jesus that we all like. Or are we going to lead with the pure, unfiltered, unadulterated, unadulterated power of God in Jesus Christ? and what he did for us on the cross. So let's look at the paradox of the cross first. One of the things that, that Paul does is he makes this opening statement, saying that, that, that the cross is folly to those who are perishing, and it is the power of God to those who are being saved. And then he's going to back this up with an argument. And the first thing he does is he quotes a, a, a statement here uh, in Isaiah 29, that basically that, that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. And God's going to destroy man's wisdom. And then he says this in verse 20, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? You give me the highest thinkers of our culture, the debaters, the wise people, the scribes. Scribes are the people who know the books. It's almost a a Jewish term for people who really understood the Old Testament. The debaters of this age. These are the people who would stand at the Areopagus in Athens and and debate the philosophies of, of this time. Where are these people? Well, this is what he says. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? What God's saying is the wisdom of man is foolish to him. You can't understand him with man's wisdom. And here's why I think Paul is making this statement. Because everything that man had tried to do to stop Jesus has failed. For 2,000 years, people thought, well, let's try this to stop the message. Let's try this. And when Jesus walked on the face of this planet, when he was walking around, what happened? People were always trying to stop him, always trying to shut him up, always trying to to, to discourage people from following him. In fact, it got so bad that during Passover week, four groups of people that absolutely hit each other, the Roman authorities and Pilate, the Judean authorities, which is Herod, The religious authorities, and both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, all four groups of those people despised each other with a passion. But they came together to to do one thing, and that is to kill Jesus. Because Jesus was a threat to every single human institution, government, and religion on the face of this planet. And they thought, if we just kill him, we'll stop him. But when they killed him, what did they do? It was in the very act of trying to destroy the movement of Jesus that it propelled the movement of Jesus to even greater, to even greaterness, because it was through his death and through his resurrection that we now have the gospel and the good news of Jesus. And so what we have here, Paul's saying, listen, man, they keep trying to stop, they keep trying to stop the gospel. They keep trying to stop what God's doing. And you can't, you cannot thwart the work of God. Look what it says in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Listen, here's what we need to understand. Here's The, wis- the difference between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God is this. The wisdom of man is going to have a, a faith system and trusting in what is what, what I believe, what I know. The wisdom of God is going to trust in Jesus. It's going to trust in who Jesus is and who, what Jesus has done. That is where our faith lies. We are either going to put faith in ourselves or we are going to put faith in Jesus. There is only two choices in this world. I will trust in my own beliefs and my own understandings or I will trust in what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. That is, that is the difference between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. And he he breaks this down for us in verse twenty two and twenty three, because he says this: for Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. Now, now these are two different categories of people today. See, see the wisdom of man can look to, look look different, because the wisdom of man can look like someone who's religious, someone who's very spiritual, someone who's who's saying that they're following God or they want to believe in God, and they're they're seeking God through religious means and religious activities. But then. You have people who are naturalists who say, listen, all I need are the facts or science or reason. But what Paul is saying, there's two categories of people and the same two categories of people exist today. The spiritual people who want to find Jesus on their own. And the reason why the Jews never found it is because of what it says in verse 23. But um, verse, uh, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. See, the religious... D- didn't accept Jesus because he was creating a kingdom and he was doing something that they didn't want. What the Jews wanted is they wanted Rome overthrown. They wanted a kingdom of this world. They wanted all their problems solved on this life and realizing that God was doing something so much greater. He was doing something, yes, he was doing something in the here and now, but he was also doing something eternal. He was, he was reconciling all creation to himself He was doing something in the hearts and minds of people, but he was doing something in the spiritual realm and in the creative realm. He was doing something not just in the here and now, but in the future and in the past. Jesus was doing something even greater and bigger. And the Jewish people, the religious leaders, they could not grasp that. And the same is true today. There are people who cannot grasp Jesus because they have made a Savior in their own image to to save a life of their own desires. And if you do that, you're rejecting Jesus. But there's also the 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 the, the, the Gentiles, who are those the Greeks, or the philosophers, who just want to reason all day long. And, and listen, Christianity is—I'm not preaching anti-intellectualism. I'm not saying that that we don't. There is no reason to the Christian faith. There is reason to the Christian faith. But we must lead by—we must lead with faith, and understand that we can give every argument, but it takes faith and requires faith to understand the gospel. Number of years ago, I believe I've shared this story before, but um, number of years ago, I, when I was pastoring the church across the lake in Denver, there was we had our church office. Uh, we shared an office with a number of different businesses, and one of them was a civil engineering group. And uh, one of the one of the civil engineers that worked in this uh, civil engineering uh, business, uh, we he'd walk by our office, and we just developed a great you know rapport, talking back and forth, and and just chatting about life and just simple things. But one day the conversation took a little bit deeper turn and he started asking me what I was doing. I was telling him how we're prepping for this sermon series and what we were doing. And, and uh, he started, it was really interesting. We started sh- opening up a little bit. He said, well, I, I grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic church and then I went to college and I just rejected the Bible and I rejected all the things that had to do with God. I just didn't see it. I didn't understand it. And uh, I, I'm what you consider agnostic today. Um, I think the Bible is, is good for people like you, but it's not for me. And in that moment, and in our conversation, I invite him. I said, hey, would you want to read the Bible with Do you want to study the Bible with me together? Maybe we just lunch every so often we get together, we read through the Bible, and we just we talk about it. And he's like, yeah, I'd love that. Now, now, let me just say this. Most people that you think don't know or don't care about the Bible, don't care about the things of God, I think you would be surprised how many people... Would if you invited them to read the Bible with you, would do that. Because people are interested. People are curious. And even though Dave was someone who claimed as being an agnostic, he was someone that was interested in getting some of his questions answered. And so for four years, we met. For four years. Not every week, but a lot of times, we would meet for lunch, and we would just go over what he was reading in the Bible. He started attending our church. He started attending life a life group. His kids were involved. I mean, all these things were had For four years, we just met. And every single week, he'd have more questions. I just can't get over this issue. I can't get over this issue. And we were sitting in Wendy's one day. And uh, he just had, you know, all these questions. And in the wisdom of God, I'm not this smart to think of saying something like this. But in the wisdom of God, in the moment the Holy Spirit gave me the perfect words to say, and here's what I said, to all of his questions, he still said, I said, Dave, Maybe All these questions that you still have. Maybe God is waiting to answer those questions on the other side of faith. Maybe he's saying, you trust in me and then I will answer some of those questions. And he, and he, and he paused and he looked down, contemplated that question. He looked up and said, all right, I'm ready to believe. See, that, see that's the power of God. And let me tell you, Dave is a faithful Follower of Jesus to this day, and and that is what that's what Paul's talking about here. See, if you try to lead with I gotta have I gotta answer all the questions I gotta I gotta be intellectual I gotta read all the books. Listen, we lead with the simple truths of the gospel. What Paul is saying is we preach Christ crucified. We proclaim Jesus because what was it for? For verse twenty four. But to those who are called. Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You cannot elaborate on Jesus. You can't get better than Jesus. You can't appeal to people. I think we got to stop trying to appeal to people to believe and to follow Jesus with everything that's not Jesus. We have to point to Jesus. And when we understand Jesus and who he is and what he has accomplished, it is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God. And I wish I had the next hour to dig into just that statement alone, but I don't have the time, okay? But this is what we believe. We trust our our faith in what Jesus has done and who he is. And then Paul makes a statement, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, this is... Paul's using a little ironic language here. Obviously, there is no weakness of God and there's no foolishness of God. But what he's saying is this. For everyone, for man's perception, to those who are perishing, what seems like weakness and foolishness, it feels like weakness to have your Savior die on a cross. It feels like foolishness to worship, to worship your Savior who, who suffered and died. Why would I do that? Whatever it seems to man, it is it is even it is greater than we can possibly comprehend. But it takes faith to see it. And we've got to stop trying to appeal to people and understanding that we just present Jesus crucified and risen. And let that be the power of God. And let that be the thing that works and moves in their hearts to draw them to Jesus. So that's the paradox. We've got, we've got to stop leading with our own wisdom and lead with the wisdom of God in faith. So if, and if that is true, if it is true that, that we as human beings can't figure out God on our own, and we, if we try to create our own religious systems on our own, we're going to keep falling short. If that is true, and if, cro- if the cross is the power of God, then there's, there's some implications for that, and that leads us to the posture towards the cross. Now look at, we didn't read this this morning, Chris didn't read this passage, but I want you to read verse 26 through 31 with me. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now let's time out. All right, do you see what Paul's saying here? I don't know many people whose life verse is this passage. Paul's saying, listen, if we're going to talk about who's impressive, who's impressive on this planet... It's not Christians. God did not call those who are mighty, who are wise, who are eloquent. He said, Not many of you. And this, this is true. I, again, I'm reading a, a book that's on the, the history of the Roman church in the, the city of Rome, first two centuries, from what we understand archaeology and, and some other things. And, and it is true. The, the predominant groups that were part of the early church in Rome were immigrants and slaves. And Paul, Paul knows this. And Paul understands that, that, listen, we have to understand who is Jesus calling and why is Jesus calling those of us who are not wise, who are not the noblest, who are not the most powerful. What does he mean by this? Verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are. And why did God do this? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is why Jesus has done what he has done. Our posture towards the cross is understanding this. We cannot boast. If we have received the message of the cross, understand this, you didn't receive it, you didn't understand it, you didn't didn't grasp it, because you are smarter than everybody else. God didn't choose you because he thinks you're better than everybody else. And I think there is a danger and there's there's a spirit of arrogance that I think is very prominent in many churches today. Because there's an arrogance because, hey, we've got the best theology. I'm not as bad as those people. My life is way way more put together. And if we're not careful, we forget who we really were before Jesus. And Paul is saying, none of us have a reason to boast in the presence of God. In fact, God chose us to show that he could do, he could change the world with the lowly, with the despised, with those who aren't the smartest. Now, I'm about to make a very important truth statement right here, and if you want to debate me afterwards, we can debate afterwards. But Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player that's ever lived. Okay? I, LeBron's great, but I've seen both, and Michael Jordan is better. Can I get an amen for that? Hey, amen. All right, thank you. Okay. But but here's the thing I understand about these guys. Uh LeBron, both LeBron and Jordan needed help, right? Like Jordan needed Pippen, LeBron needed whoever he's paying, and <laughs> the most recent team he's on. But but they needed help. They 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 could they just didn't achieve and win the championship on their own. But 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 imagine imagine this, right? It's kind of like this. Remember when you're in in recess. In, 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 at, at school, in you'd, time to pick teams. And the two people that were always picking teams were always the two best athletes, right? That's just how it worked. Now, I don't know if they still do this at school today, but this is what, the way it was when I was a kid. The two best players were the two team captains, and they would go down the line, and they would pick what? Best to worst. And what you're praying for is like, just, just don't let me be the bottom two. Like, just please, God, please, God, right? But, but imagine you're, you're there at recess, and the person who's picking teams says, I want the bottom, you know, starts picking from the bottom of the list. You're like, what is he doing? And what, what if he won that game with the lowest players on the field? What if Jordan had, or, or LeBron had said, I want the five bench players from the worst team in the NBA and we're gonna win a championship. The, the glory, the power the majesty, the the, the honor that we would have in our minds of someone who did something like that would be, um, there'd be no debate. There'd be no debate. And that is exactly what God has done with us. He has chosen us. He's chosen the people who who are the lowliest of the world to shame the wise, to shame the the proud, to shame the, the, the mighty and the powerful. And he's done this so that no human being might boast in his presence. Look, look what it says in verse 30 and 31. And because of him, because of Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus. You are not where you are because of you. You are, you are everything you have from him. You, for you became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Your wisdom in life, your wisdom in understanding God's word and your wisdom in understanding theology, your wisdom in understanding how to love one another and your wisdom in how to parent and your righteousness and your standing before God and your sanctification and the sins that you have put to death and the righteousness in now you are living, your redemption and your place and your standing and your practices and your Christianity and your faith, everything that is good and righteous and holy about you has nothing to do with how great you are has everything to do with how good and gracious and powerful and great God is, so that, as it is written, let one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Our posture towards the cross should be such immense humility and gratitude that we don't stand next to the cross with our chest puffed out. We fall down at the cross because we are not worthy. Because we understand what Jesus has done for us and how God has chosen us in love. God loves you so much that he chose you. And he had, you, know, you read that and you're like, hey, what do I do with this? Not many wise, not many powerful, not many noble. Maybe, if you're one of those wise and powerful and noble, good job. I know I'm in the other category. And those of us that are in the other category... It, it it just it should it should make us want to sing and worship in greater and deeper ways every day the signs of maturity and the signs of us understanding our faith and understanding the cross is not it's it's not a spirit of pride it's not a, it's not our, our intellect it is our humility and it is our love towards Jesus there was a time in my life when I I wanted something bigger than the cross. I was like, yeah, I, I get Jesus. I get, I get, I, yeah, I get. He died on the cross for instance. I, I want to know something. I want to know something else. I want to know something bigger. I want to know something better. I want to know something deeper. I want to know. Some, I want to know the intricacies of, of God. And and there was a there was a time in my my walk with Jesus where I just want to take the cross, put it in a drawer, and say, I get it. I want something better. I want something deeper. There is nothing better, and there's nothing deeper. And it's because when we when we when we come up to the cross and understand what we really deserve and who He really is, it makes us worship even deeper. Right, it leads us to our last one. It's the, the proclamation of the cross, the proclamation of the cross. Look at verses two or chapter two, verses one through five. This is so the first is an internal response, and this now is our external response. That was what Paul says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. and my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I love this. I love these five verses. Because you know what makes me feel? It makes me feel normal. Because Paul struggled with fear. Paul struggled with, I I don't know what to say. I don't know if I have all the answers. He says it right there. I I didn't didn't come to you with, with lofty speech. I, I was weak. I was fearful. I, I didn't know if I was going to convince you or not. I know I don't, I don't have the greatest speaking abilities. But I do know one thing. I know Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. And that's what I'm going to proclaim. And when I do that, I will see the power of God. See, if we, if we need the wisdom of God to experience the power of the cross, and one of the ways that we experience the wisdom of God is we stop trusting in our abilities to convict and to convince people to believe. It is not your job to convict or to convict or convince. But here's the, here's here's the problem: you and I love to think that we can. There's a lot of times you think you can be the Holy Spirit. To your kids. There's a lot of times you can think you think you can be the Holy Spirit to your spouse, that you can be the Holy Spirit to your friends and neighbors, that you can be the person that shows them and convicts them and convinces them to do these kinds of things. But that is not possible. And you know that why that is? Because there, there's a couple of passages of scripture I want you to, I want us to understand. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians 4. You don't have to turn there, but we'll have the verses on the screen. But 2 Corinthians 4 talks about. Our state before knowing Jesus says this uh, in verse three, and even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing that we're perishing. Same as in in First Corinthians. In their their case, the God of this world, talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you understand every single person who's walking around today that is not a follower of Jesus, there is a spiritual blindness that demonic forces are working to keep them from understanding? And not only that, not only do we have a spiritual problem, if you look the next book, a couple books over in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, we don't just have a, a spiritual problem with, with Satan, but if you look at uh, Ephesians 4, verse 17 and 18, again, these, these passages will be on the screen. It says, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of god because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart you see we not only have a spiritual problem by which the 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 demonic forces are trying to blind the minds of unbelievers we have if we even if demons didn't exist and satan didn't exist we have an ignorance problem because of the hardness of hearts in our own lives which means this you can't convince someone to follow Jesus. All you have to do is present Jesus, crucified, risen again. You know, one of the best examples of this is is the person of Billy Graham. I'm convinced if you you printed out Billy Graham's uh, messages and just read them, there's something about them that I don't believe we would be mesmerized by. We we wouldn't read them and think, wow, these are deep. Wow, these are are profound. I think one of the things that Billy Graham understood was that his power did not rest in his eloquence, in his lofty speech. Billy Graham's power resided in this. He just knew this. If I tell people that Jesus has died for their sins, I expect God to move. And we need to believe the same thing today. We need to believe that our power rests not in our eloquence, not in our intellect, not I have all the answers, I figured it out. Or I'm so afraid and if I'm afraid, I can't do anything because I'm afraid. Like Paul says, no, we simply move forward and we testify and say, this is who Jesus is. And this is why he died on the cross. And this is why the cross is so powerful to me. Because on it, He took your sins and he paid the penalty for your sins and he took the wrath of God for your sins. He was your substitute. He shed blood for you and he did that because he loved you. When we simply state those things, we should expect the power of God to move. The power does not reside in you. The power resides in the spirit of God and that's exactly what what he says in 1 Corinthians Look what it says, my message, verse four, my, my, my message and speech were not with plausible words, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your, re- your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We move forward in faith when you simply proclaim Jesus. And, and one of the things that we've talked about a lot in our church is having that one life, one person close to you that's far from God, And that person that we want you to pray for them, invest in their life, invite them into your life to study God's word or to share them with them, Jesus. But sometimes our our fear determines what we say and do. Our fear determines that I'm gonna lead with this part of Christianity. My fear leads with, I'm I'm just gonna invite them to church and maybe they'll catch God. As opposed to thinking, no, no. If I wanna see the power of God work around me and in me, And in their lives, I just have to proclaim Jesus. That's it. Proclaim Jesus, proclaim the cross, proclaim him crucified and risen, and watch what God does. Wait and see what he does. Because when we do, we'll see the power of God work and move. Leads us to a few questions and then we're done. Number one, is the cross folly to you? Is the cross confusing to you or is the cross powerful to you? If you're just to be honest and you think about the cross and you think about the message of Jesus, what is it to you right now? Does it make you want to fall on your knees and worship? Or is it something that you're just ambivalent about? You're just confused about it? Or you actually think it's a little weird? If you have questions about the meaning of the cross, if you have questions saying I, I don't understand how it's the power of God, it doesn't make sense to my mind how we sing about it and we worship it and or worship what happened worship Jesus, I don't understand it. I want to encourage you, come come talk to me after the service today. We have, we have a prayer team out in the lobby. We'd love to talk to you and answer any questions. maybe do lunch later this week, but but don't leave here if you have questions about the cross, if you don't understand, if the cross is not, power to you, then you need to do some seeking and asking questions. Number two, what's, what are you boasting in? Are you sitting there and, and, and what's, what's making you, what's giving you the sense of pride this morning? Are you boasting in that you have life figured out, that you're smarter than those those, those other people? Are you boasting in Jesus chose me. Yeah, that, that verse 20, 26, not very many wise. I'm boasting in that. That's my life verse. That's what I'm going to boast in. It's God's power to do something supernatural in me because I would not be the person I am today if it weren't for the cross. And then lastly, who will you trust when you proclaim the cross? Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust in your skills of oration? your intellect, your debating ability, your knowledge of the Bible, your knowledge of Scripture, or are you going to trust in the Spirit of God who is the only one who can convict and convince people to desire the cross? That's our task. If if we want to experience the power of the cross, we need the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of man. Let's reject the wisdom of man this morning. And let's hold on to the wisdom of God so that the cross becomes once again the power that's meant to be in our lives.